Hey, hey, and welcome to another installment of the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and this is episode number 18, Humanoids Need Not Apply, with guest Carla Diana. We're going to be talking about robots in this episode, but robots, at least as Carla thinks of them, don't necessarily conform to our preconceptions, which are informed by science fiction. We'll hear from Carla on that topic in just a minute, but first, reading from her website. Carla Diana is a designer, author, and educator who explores the impact of future technologies through hands-on experiments in product design and tangible interaction. She has designed a range of products from robots to connected home appliances, and her work has appeared on the covers of Popular Science, Technology Review, and the New York Times Sunday Review. Carla has been granted the honor of creating the 4D Design Program at the Cranbrook Academy of Art, serving as its first designer in residence. She also serves as Head of Design for Diligent Robotics, an Austin, Texas-based company where advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning manifest in robot assistance to help healthcare workers. Carla writes and lectures frequently on the social impact of robotics and emerging technology and created the world's first children's book on 3D printing, Leo, the Maker Prince. She co-hosts the RoboPsych podcast, a show that explores the design and psychological impact of human-robot interaction. Her latest book, My Robot Gets Me, How Social Design Can Make New Products More Human, published by Harvard Business Review Press, came out in March of 2021. Carla holds an MFA in 3D Design from Cranbrook Academy of Art and a BE in Mechanical Engineering from the Cooper Union. So here's my conversation with Carla Diana. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm speaking with Carla Diana, who has a long and impressive resume that you will have heard me read at the beginning of the show. But just to recap, I'll say that she is a 4D designer. And uh, Carla, I'll ask you to talk about what that means in just a moment, but also the author of a new book called My Robot Gets Me. Is there a longer title? Yes. It's My Robot Gets Me, How Social Design Can Make New Products More Human. So I'm tempted to jump into the new products being more human, but let's take a minute and talk about 4D design. I mean, I guess I have a, an intuitive notion of what that means, but it might be wrong. Okay, sure. So I've built my career around this passion of linking the creative and the technical. And I have worked many years as a product designer, which I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about the book and everything else. But my design work has always been really focused on all of what I call dynamic properties. So sound, light, and movement. And so 4D design is design that works in the realm of those dynamic properties. And to do so relies on computing technology. So the term 4D design really comes into play because I was invited to create and launch a new two-year master's program at a very storied um, art and design institution that's called Cranbrook Academy of Art. And so I'm here now. That's actually where I, I'm on campus right now. And my students are about to like, probably arriving as we speak. So we're just kicking off the semester. And 4D design is the name of the Cranbrook Academy of Art's newest department. And it's the newest department in 47 years. So in this very historic place that has a craft of metalsmithing, ceramics, painting, photography, print media, sculpture, fiber art, graphic design, called 2D design, 3D design, and then 4D design and architecture. And what I bring here in terms of our craft is form, electronics, and code. So that's the medium that we work in. My assumption was that the 4 and 4D differentiated from 3D because it added an element of time. Is that not right? Yeah. So that's what I refer to when I, I guess when I say dynamic characteristics. So if we think about those three things, sound, light, and movement, they are things that unfold over time. I got an advanced, well, not an advanced copy, a reader's copy of your book, but it had a very intrusive watermark that made it difficult to read. So uh, instead, I listened to a one-hour presentation that you gave on the topic of the book, which was quite good, uh, particularly the question and answer. You know, that's often the case that um, the, the question and answer period brings out some really interesting stuff. But then I went to read an article 
that you had published in the Atlantic about uh, robot friends, I think it was. Oh, yeah. But then I noticed that the article was from 2014. And I thought, if somebody were going to interview from me, I'm not sure I would want to stand by something I wrote in 2014. But it seems very congruent with your current work. Try me. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it does seem very congruent uh, with your current work. Um, not to, you know, let a different author's work define the conversation, but I read a book a few years ago by Yuval Noah Harari, where he was talking about not so much robotics, but AI. And a famous portion of the book that caused a lot of controversy was where he's describing how artificial intelligence could really shepherd us emotionally and, you know, help us get through tough emotional periods. And it really seems sort of infantilizing. You know, the care which with with which our artificial intelligent overlords would, you know, manipulate our emotions and, and, you know, direct us in healthy and productive ways, but still, you know, manipulative ways. And um, in a question and answer series that you did after presenting on your book, somebody asked you about AI ethics and it brought up um, the topic of robots that look like humans. And you're not necessarily a huge fan of that. It's not necessarily a goal of what you want robots to be. Right. And you talked about, you know, the sounds that they make, the lights, the movements, some sounds which are definitely not human sounding can be very endearing. And I'm thinking of, you know, R2-D2 and all the, the, the beeps and things that he makes. They're, they have a lot of character. They're very expressive. Mm, for sure. But there's no aspect of trying to pass for human. So I'd like to just, you know, turn that over to you and let you carry that, um, that idea forward a bit. Oh, yeah. Well, so you've talked about a few things, you know, I guess, first of all, we'll, we'll, so I'll start backwards. The idea of having communication with objects is core to all of my work and is very core to the premise of the book, My Robot Gets Me. It's a really a collection of stories around my design practice over the past decade and the work that I've done with researchers in the area of social robotics, meaning an area of robotics where we study how we interact with a machine in a human and social way. We talk to it, we hand it objects, we listen to it, we watch its gestures, etc. And my idea is, as you mentioned the humanoid, is that we rely too heavily on the humanoid. That's something that comes from science fiction and popular culture when we hear the term robot, but that it's not necessary for effective communication. And so a lot of that communication can be abstracted when we see like, for example, I'm looking at a microphone that has a light on it. When it's muted, that light will flash when, when it's not muted, it's solid. And that's a, it's a, message, right? It's a message that I've interpreted that I can see. And, and so when I talk about sound, light and movement, often those can be used as carriers of messages. So R2-D2's blips and bleeps and the blips and bleeps that are in some of the products that I've worked on are message carriers. They're translations of what I would call humanese, right? I guess I call those blips and bleeps humanese because they're a language that we can interpret and intuit, even if it's not a literal word. And so once we start interacting with devices in this way, we start to rely on them. We start to have a relation. We start to see them as characters, the more we are interacting, the more they become characters. And with the introduction of AI, we have the ability to, as designers to create products that are riffing on all of that, that are making new language or making new conversations or building on needs or thoughts or emotions that we're expressing and expressing those back to us. and. So that's where the ethics comes in, right? And, you know, what I caution about in the, particularly at the end of the book is for us as designers to be deliberate about those choices and to understand 
what the motivation of the interaction is and to select projects that we believe in. So there's you know, the project that I talk about the most is the main one that I work on in my practice now, which is a device that's in hospital settings to assist nurses who are exhausting themselves running up and down hallways. So this is a robot that's called Moxie that will run up and down the hallway on their behalf and can go to the pharmacy, pick up meds, can deliver a blanket, can pick up records, can deliver specimens to a lab, that kind of thing. And it has a lot of social interaction in order to work well. So instead of somebody having to learn a system of commands or codes, a person can operate the robot as, as much as we can make it possible through very obvious messages through talking, through understanding the robot's gesture. If the robot is getting into an elevator with other people, we're very deliberate about how it interacts in that social setting and how people understand it's not going to run them over and things like that. And I've seen it. It's, there's one that was, that was just purchased by a local hospital to me here in um, Michigan it's amazing. You know, people go like, Moxie's here. I mean, they have an emote, they have a relationship with this, this thing, you know, like they call it by name, they get excited. They say, you know, and, and the robot does deliberately does kind of gestures. It does. I brought my seven-year-old there and he loves, he love, it does this sort of, it will wave. It has these heart eyes that it can sometimes, um, you know, bring out in order to be extra endearing and you know when the moment calls for it and you know but there are also going to be devices that are created for more nefarious ends and you know and that's obviously a blurry line you know there are companies that want me to drink more soda and you know so that's where it gets that's where the ethics i think we need to have a lot of conversations. We need ethicists and philosophers working in this realm, particularly when we get to really complex things and systems like autonomous vehicles. But it's still a tool that's coming from a, a human entity. So I don't, you use the term AI overlords. So I, I tend not to use that framework so much um, as thinking of it as tools that humans are using, but they can be used for good ends or nefarious ends and every blurry line in between. So that's my really long-winded answer to your question. Oh, I like long-winded answers. They make my job easier. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, speaking of uh, our, I didn't want to be political. I mean, when I say AI overlords, I really mean corporate overlords, but you know what this device is, right? It's an Amazon Echo. Yes, and you know what it's telling you, or it's telling me without saying anything. It is telling you that it's off, right? Yeah, it's not listening. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, at a glance, I can see that it's not listening. And so I can say Alexa, and maybe the one in the other room will hear that and respond, but uh, you know, we won't hear it here. Oh, you know, you've just evoked um, agents like throughout all your listeners' home. You know, in the, the tiny percentage of uh, podcast listeners who aren't using earbuds or headphones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to be so judgy there. I just, no, I, I've heard you mention that concern before, and I certainly have I, it. Yeah. I've done a, a few um, interviews, and, and some, some of my hosts are very sensitive to that, because I will do it as well. Well, I, I listened to a lecture that you gave, and I was listening to it last night on a laptop, and I wasn't using headphones, and I heard you mention the name Alexa, and I looked over at the device, and it didn't it didn't respond. I've noticed that it's getting better about distinguishing between me saying the wake word to activate it and me just referencing it or, you know, media referencing it. So it seems to be getting smarter in that respect, which is one of the reasons why I like the Echo. I mean, it's a very simple device. It's small. It's free. I mean, Amazon was basically giving them away for a time. And to me, it's sort of a window into the development of AI that's just always there, you know, because the device doesn't change, but the device doesn't do much. It just connects you to a larger system, which operates in the cloud, which is constantly being updated. 
So to me, the, the Echo is a very, you know, it, it is a useful device for more than just the reasons that Amazon wanted it to be useful to me. And uh, things that you've said, you know, about communicative technology and uh, intuitively interactive technology apply to this thing, because it does communicate a lot just with the color of the ring. You know, if the ring is yellow, I know there's a notification. Uh, if I say its name and the blue sort of uh, pulsing ring comes up, I know it's listening. So it's, it's yeah, I, I see the concepts that you're talking about embodied in this device. Yeah, precisely. Now, I, I sometimes ironically refer to Alexa as the robot. You know, I said, I'll, I'll ask, the, hold on, I'll ask the robot. But she doesn't move. She doesn't manipulate the world at all. She really just seems like a speaker and a microphone and a connection to the cloud. But I noticed at one point in an interview you gave, you said that we probably won't notice the first robots as they insinuate themselves into our lives. Uh, what did you mean by that? And what constitutes a robot? Ah, uh, yeah. So this is, um, so first of all, what I meant by that is that we are going to start and probably already have started seeing robotics, I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> robotics appearing in ordinary everyday products. For example, you could look at, I have a colleague who spends a lot of time discussing automated doors like that are in, you know, your shopping centers and grocery stores and that that in a sense is a robot. It senses you, it, it makes a decision about its actuation and then it responds accordingly. So in terms of what constitutes a robot, and in this graduate program that I run, we have lots of discussions and then heated debates and people have different ideas around what constitutes a, a robot. For me, really, it has to do with the ability to take in information, process information, and respond through light, sound, or movement. And light might be a, a screen. You know, in a sense, we could say a computer is a robot. You know, I, I lean towards looking at things that have movement as more quintessentially robots. You know, I think in terms of popular culture or some of the historical precedents, there's um, a Czech play that used, first used the word robot. And things that move are things that we then perceive as other entities. But certainly an Amazon Echo or a Google Home or you know Apple's similar agents are robotic agents in the way that I've described. And we're going to start seeing them embodied in all different ways in ways you know we were ready like you just showed me an echo that was that's a, a puck but i have one that's a cylinder and certainly there are starting to be products coming out of amazon that have movement and you know movement is complex and expensive from a product design point of view but it is becoming more and more ubiquitous and accessible from companies we're going to see and it's very very effective for us as humans in terms of having something evoked from us so like i'm looking at we're doing this interview and i'm looking at this uh, microphone one of the things i talk about in the book are sometimes i riff on design ideas for things that maybe don't exist yet and one of the things that i talk about is you know something as simple as a microphone might become roboticized and you know what might happen is it might have a motor in it it might know which person in the room to turn towards to listen to it might know to you know spin itself around and hide tuck away if it's not listening and in fact i worked with um there's this great design firm called tomorrow lab that i work with 
and they're based, their home base is New York City. And they've been doing a series with the company DigiKey. They've been doing a YouTube series that's called Potentially Genius around creating new ideas in products through electronic experiments. And so they had me on as well. So they have a guest on who'll talk about some kind of fantasy product and then they actually prototype it. So it was the coolest thing because I talked about this microphone and then they built, we wound up coming up with this idea together. I have, you know, we wound up coming up with this microphone and it's a little bit abstracted, kind of like a bird that cranes its head. And when you lean back from it, it pulls away and automatically mutes. And when you lean towards it, it pulls toward you and unmutes. And so it's bringing all those social gestures that I talked about. And it, you know, definitely is embodied in, I mean, it's also like this abstracted kind of animal called a zoomorphism. But though, yeah, those are the kinds of things that we're going to start seeing more of. Well, you've described... Um not in this conversation, but, but other conversations I've, I've heard with you in them. Um, you've described some products as being or becoming entities. Uh, would you talk about that? What do you have in mind when you described objects or machines as entities? What I'm talking about there is really, again, riffing on this idea of social robotics. And that's a term, that's a term that I discovered mid-career that there was an entire branch of robotics that, and there are, you know, entire labs around our research institutions. There's, you know, one at MIT at Georgia tech, the folks that I work with in my consulting practice are at the university of Texas in Austin. There's an entire field of study around social robotics and those labs have historically started with robots that were very humanoid because we talked about humanoid a little bit earlier where one of the first robots that i worked on was with a professor named dr andrea tamaz and we were both faculty at georgia tech at the time she's now the ceo of diligent robotics that creates the robot moxie that i described and the first one we worked on was described as an uh, only upper torso humanoid. So, but it would, it would sit behind the table and it could be trained and it had arms and elbow and hands, actually five fingers with pads in it. So that if you handed this robot an object or if the robot knew to grab something, it would know that whether or not it was grabbed, it would know how hard it was grabbed. The head was extremely expressive with, two eyeballs and eyelids. And in terms of the design philosophy that I was working with was to try to ride a line between it being an appliance and a creature. And so instead of having hair, it had this sort of helmet. Instead of ears, it had these kind of like perfect antennae that could become, but could become very expressive the way that a dog hangs its ears when you scold it or perks its ears up when it's listening or alert or paying attention to something in particular. As a designer, I was really intrigued by how much communication came through these social robot experiments, as well as how much emotion was evoked. I worked on these things very closely. I worked with a fantastic team of engineers and uh, software specialists, artificial intelligence specialists in Dr. Tomaz's lab at Georgia Tech. I knew very specific details about its construction, yet the very first time I interacted with it purely in terms of what the end result was intended to be, I got goosebumps. You know, I really, I felt like, Oh, and then that robot's name is Simon. You know, Simon's, Simon's looking at me. Simon, Simon just heard what I said. It was programmed to do a um, task around sorting colors and it would learn the color. So it would start out not knowing what, say, green was. 
And then you would say, Simon, take this. Where does it go? If, if it knew the color already from some previous interactions, it would put it in that appropriate bin. If it had never seen this color, it would say, I don't know. And it would kind of shrug its shoulders and throw up its hands. And the whole exchange, there were so many subtleties around that, which just seems like a simple, dumb kind of, you know, to, to and I'm not saying there was nothing dumb about this project, but in terms of a social interaction, right? If I were interacting with, you know, and dumb is not the right word. I said innocence, probably the more right, you know, like it's the kind of interaction you have with a child. Well, which bin does this go in? The child says, I don't know. I, I don't know. What is this color? It's, you know, it's green. So the robot would be able to parse the sentence. You would say it goes in the green bin. It would be able to parse that sentence and pull out the word green. And then from then on, the next time it would know green. The next time you handed it a green object, it would hold it up to its cameras and it would say, it goes in the green bin. So there's all of the nuance around the intellectual parts of that interaction. The fact that it hears my sentence, can distinguish one word from another, can categorize that word as a color, as opposed to other parts of the sentence structure. I mean, there's all of that going on. But for me, the, the goosebumpy part was really something around just me like being paid attention to you know being heard being understood having a desire expressed and having that desire recognized by this thing which like when i think about that level of exchange i can't help myself but call it an entity and you know and that's something that because it was so powerful started to become really core to my design philosophy as a designer. And so I've, I've constantly between academia and industry because I love the benefits of both. In industry, I love seeing things that get actually out into the world, but in academia, I love seeing things that get pushed towards the future. And so after working on the Simon project, I was working on several industry projects, including a floor cleaning robot. And my, a uh, lot of, how I led the team in terms of the interaction. So I was working with a firm called Smart Design with a you know a great team. And um, I led the interaction design part portion of, of creating this new floor cleaning robot. And the creative direction that I guided the team with was really based on thinking of it as an entity that would be endearing. And the benefit of its endearing nature would ideally be streamlined, effective communication. You know, and, and again, going back to the early part of the conversation, through shorthand, abstracted, R2-D2-like communication, can we have a sound that lets us know this thing is in distress if it's stuck under the couch? you know, not kind of blaring and interrupting you when you're you know, in the middle of recording a podcast and now suddenly this thing won't stop beeping. But, you know, it, like riding that line to have it be something that was subtle and not, to not enough to not be intrusive, but clear enough in its emotional intention to let you know something was amiss and it would require my intervention. I like that you mentioned dogs because dogs are very expressive yeah. you know, with their bodies and their faces, but they have, their anatomy is very different from ours. You know, the, our ears can't move like their ears move. Mm -hmm. We don't have tails to wag, right. you know, they don't, they don't have hands to gesture with, but the, the nonverbal communication that passes between humans and dogs, particularly about emotional states is, is quite nuanced. So I'm, I'm looking forward to um, robots and other devices, which are expressive, and very clearly expressive and endearing in a way, but are not mimicking humans. Sometimes I'll be on a website and I'll, you know, I'll ask for help. And there's a, you know, supposedly a chat assistant and it's called Mike or Bob or, you know, some human name. Mm. And I'll ask a question and I, I can see immediately, oh, this is just a bot. Yeah. This, this is not a person helping me out. And I don't like that the bot is named John. Right. You know, I, I want the bot to be named 
glabber or you know something yeah. non-human because I'll I'll have more patience with it mm -hmm. if I don't come into it with the expectation that it's going to have you know the cognitive sophistication of a human. You mentioned Rossum's Universal Robot. That's the the check play mm -hmm. where we we get the the term robot, and you know given that that's where the word comes from the themes of the play seem to be worth addressing because in the play a robot is something that does human labor you know that is definitional mm -hmm. and we we haven't once talked about you know technological unemployment or yeah. the effects of robots on on jobs we, we're talking about you know how we relate to these things and they could be toys they could be pets and they're not necessarily doing work um what is in in your work the relationship between robots and work and you know employment uh yeah it's interesting and right i remember right after i mentioned um rur and the the definition of robot i have a colleague wendy jew at cornell tech who will say robots are objects that do work on our behalf uh, which is you know another way to to define the robot. So your your question is around the relationship between work and robots. Yeah, has has the concept of the robot outgrown that association with labor? I don't think it's outgrown the association with labor. I think that labor is a vast subject to unpack. I think that there are lots of kinds of work i mean I, you know i guess i would question more like what how do you define work right is entertaining me work yeah i mean it is right i mean there there's a lot of um jobs in the entertainment business is you know so you know sometimes the echo will suggest things or say cute things or or one of the other you know the apple agent will used to say some like sort of cute things, you know, and I, so I, I'm like kind of on the fence with that. Like, I don't like overly verbose things, but I do think that just what I've riffed on a lot about creating a thing that's endearing, you know, why make it endearing is all, often a, a big question. And I always result resort back to, well, because it's more effective communication, but it's sometimes it's entertaining, you know, like the, the robot Moxie in the hospital setting honestly is entertaining. I don't know how much of that's a novelty because we've never, they've never seen something like that before. It's very new, but the fact that it's in this, you know, difficult, serious environment and does bring is a little bit of levity. Like when I hear those nurses go like, there's Moxie, you know, Moxie knows what she's doing. You know, I, I feel like part of that is what the robot does. And, you know, but I don't know that I can separate that from its work. Like it's part of its job description, I guess I would say. Well, listeners can't see Moxie, but I've seen images of Moxie. And the first thing I notice, I mean, Moxie kind of looks like a Dalek from Doctor Who, you know, yeah. she, she would be utterly helpless in the at the bottom of a flight of stairs. But the first thing I notice is the arm. It's an arm that has more joints than a human arm does. It's articulated in a very alien sort of way. And the arm by itself is a little off putting at first glance. But then it's in its resting position, the hand on the arm is right up by the face and the face is very, you know, it's, it's um, reassuring. You know, it tells you this is not some creepy industrial thing with no sensitivity to human concerns. This is something that is here. It's got a face. And yeah, as you say, the eyes change uh, when appropriate, you know, to express not that the robot has emotions, but to express its sensitivity to a certain emotional context that it might be in. In terms of doing work, you know, I mentioned that I often refer to Alexa jokingly as the robot, but yeah, Alexa actually does work. You know, she looks things up for me. She you know, is basically going and retrieving information. She's like a, a personal assistant in that respect, or, you know, telling me the time or the weather or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So there is work being done there. Um, but if you, like I sure. think about um, camera gimbals, 
our smartphones are very versatile and they do a lot of different things and you can use them as a video camera which i do but you can pair them with other devices you can pair them with a drone they can be the control surface for a drone or you can put them on a tripod uh, underneath uh, a mechanical gimbal and then clip a sensor to your clothing somewhere and as you walk around in an environment the gimbal will move to track you and keep you in frame but really the smart thing there is your phone and the entity of the smart camera that tracks your movement is a combination of your phone plus this gimbal but when you take the phone away the gimbal is of no interest to you you know it's it's not an ongoing part of your phone which is very important to you uh, but the phone and the gimbal together create mm. this sort of emergent entity you know it is a thing that really is smart it does stuff for you it's working for you and it moves you know which is one of the things that you mentioned is being mm. important in the definition of a robot and i agree i mean a robot to me has to interact with the environment if it doesn't it's just ai you know, if it's just dealing with text or even, you know, sound, which is, you know, it is a compression wave mm -hmm. through the air. It, it does have a physical component to it. But to me, it's still right. abstract. And, you know, a, a robot that is just dealing with sound is basically dealing with abstractions. So, you know, we've mentioned R2-D2. R2-D2 is part of a pair. You know, he, he has a counterpart and um, that's C-3PO. And, you know, R2-D2 is expressive, but he doesn't talk. Although Star Wars kind of cheats and they make some people be able to understand, you know, what R2-D2 says. C-3PO, on the other hand, he is so lacking in physical mobility that he can't really do anything at all useful. Yeah. I mean, for him, carrying a tray of drinks is a huge accomplishment, you know, and you never see him pick up the tray because his hands are just not nimble at all. Um, but his his purpose, I mean, he's a protocol droid and he exists in an environment where people from a variety of cultures, alien, like literally alien cultures, uh, have to interact with each other and not, you know, step on each other's toes or make uh, cross-cultural faux pas. So he's there to keep all of that stuff straight in his head. So he has to not only understand human psychology, but he has to understand a variety of alien psychologies. And as he regularly brags, he speaks many millions of, you know, languages. An entity like C-3PO has to really understand us and understand our psychology and our emotions. And uh, he has to be able to exhibit yeah. a something we haven't mentioned yet, but this is a, a phrase I've heard you use, uh, shared attention. Like, So he's got a face, but his face is really... You know, it's not detailed. It doesn't move. There's no, he can't smile. The lips don't move when he talks. It's basically a mask, but he can turn his head mm. and you can see where he's looking. And he can, with just a slight turn of the head, indicate to you non-verbally that he understands what you're looking at or what the shared object of attention mm. should be. And I, I think that's really... Uh, not necessarily that, you know, George Lucas had all this in mind and he didn't even, you know, visually design C-3PO. That was uh, Ralph McQuarrie who did that. But having this very blank face, which is not mm -hmm. in any way attempting to fool you into thinking that it's human, but having a face that has a gaze that moves, communicates to people something very important. And part of what it's communicating is that it understands what's important to us. And I, I think that's, you know, to me, that's a, a fascinating aspect of designing robots and you know what is the purpose of a face why should a robot have a face how much capability should that face have and mm -hmm. to what end and i know there's not a very well-defined question for you there but I, I would encourage you to you know pick up on that thread and, and talk about robots and faces and this notion of shared attention yeah yeah so that's you know some part of where i build my practice by having learned from the labs in social robotics and, you know, some of the principles that were explored with these really elaborate humanoid lab robots that were created that, that are, you know, more subtleties that I think can be translated into everyday products, even if they're not literally eyes or they're not literally. And, you know, one of them, one of those principles is the importance because all of it again it's around communication let's go back to moxie if you have a piece of equipment roving hallways you know it you need to be able to operate it with it not knocking people over and you know it's got it can avoid people um it's got a very sophisticated array of cameras and sensors that allow it to navigate 
spaces, but people still want that reassurance. If you see, if you were to see, let's say a, a cart full of um, meal trays barreling towards you, you would want some reassurance that it wasn't, you know, and you're in the middle of your job as a nurse or technician, you know, typing something on a cart. And so a lot of these, you know, social interactions, some of it's just saying, simply even saying, excuse me, or having a tone that indicates, excuse me, or indicates it's coming that way, or lets you know that it's slowing down, things like that. But, um, you know, one of them is gaze. So being able to get the reassurance that the robot is engaged with you. So gaze is a really good way to do that. So if it has something that are kind of like eyes, like even if they don't blink or move, but if there are eyes on a face and they're, it's trained on you in some way, you will... You know, one will, as a human being, interpret that as gaze and interpret that as, oh, this thing understands that it's paying attention to me. I'm the one giving it commands right now, or I'm the one that is um, being observed or anything like that. So gaze is one of them. And then what you mentioned, shared attention. So that's, you know, because I, I always, as a designer too, I'm a big believer in elegance and simplicity. So as a designer, I want things to be elegant. I don't want them to be overly cute or saccharine or, or the humanoid. Like I'm a big, that's a big mantra for me is like, we don't need humanoids. <laughs> we do not need humanoids. So, you know, why design this thing with a head that has eyes? It's clearly, it's very abstracted. It's almost like the, you know, shape of an old iMac. It's kind of a rounded cube, rounded in the back. But it's clearly got eyes and it has a neck and that neck can move up and down and spin. And so with that, with the eyes, we get gaze. With the movement of the head, we get the ability for shared attention. So let's say there's a spill and let's say that, that this was a robot. Moxie doesn't clean up spills yet, but let's say this was a robot that could or could avoid, you know, or if you wanted to tell the robot, avoid this spot, I would point to the spot, look at it. And if the robot then looked at that same spot, I would then get this nonverbal communication that the robot did indeed hear my message, acknowledge my message and understand the thing which we're, you know, onto which we're sharing our attention. Um, so all those nuances of social interaction really come, come into play. So uh, I think your question was, you know, d does, does it need to have a face or eyes? Um, Actually, my question was just an invitation to talk about so or shared attention. Yeah, 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 yeah. shared attention, right? It, yeah, it comes up a lot, you know, and it will come up in like even you mentioned it when talking about the iPhone on the gimbal. Like you know, you know, if you were using that in a context of let's say you engaged in a video chat, you know, let's say someone walked in the room or two people walked in the room and, and you were engaged in a video chat with somebody else who was on the other side of some virtual connection, right? If that phone were facing you and then it started facing another person, you might know that now its attention was on that other person and its robot brain, so to speak, has the message that it's interacting with that person uh, as opposed to you, you know? So like, there are a lot of subtleties that are gonna continue to come up depending on what the device is. You know, again, even just the, the microphone, if you have a microphone and it's, it's then that doesn't even have a, a head or eyes or anything, you know, deliberately, you would get that message. You know, in speaking about uh, humanoid robots, 
I can see a reason why it would be good to have robots that, you know, are roughly human shaped, two arms, two legs and a head, because it allows them to move through a human environment and interact with objects that are designed to be operated by humans. Uh, so they can do a variety of work or they can help in a variety of ways, but they, they don't need to have, they don't need to be trying to pass for human. Mm -hmm. I think of the, the robot Sophia. Do you know the robot I'm talking about? I do know the robot you're talking about. That, that thing is very off-putting to me. Yeah. And for people who, who don't know, it is a, a robot who I think is one of these um, torso up things. Mm -hmm. So she's got arms and a head and a face and she's got this very sort of rubbery skin and the face is articulated in such a way so that she can have facial gestures, raise an eyebrow, smile, frown, that sort of thing. But it's it's very, very fake. And it is definitely in the very trough of the uncanny mm -hmm. valley. It is just it's not it, it's beyond not pleasant to look at. Yeah. It is it is to my eye, you know, decidedly unpleasant. And I think you can avoid that by even if you need a face on a robot and you need eyes on a robot and you need it to have arms and, and legs and a torso and be roughly human sized and shaped, make it cartoony, make it sort of, you know, abstracted from a human face. So there's no question whatsoever that it is attempting to fool you, because that's what I don't want. I, I don't want, you know, deceptive signals coming from my technology, particularly ones that are that are trying to pry and play on my you know, my evolved sensitivities to social cues and things like that. It's just that's something I absolutely do not want in my robots as they get more sophisticated and as they, you know, appear in my life. Yeah, this is something that comes up a lot in my conversations with um, other designers and entrepreneurs. And uh, for a few years, I was co-host of a great podcast called The RoboPsych podcast that's created by a PhD psychologist whose name is Dr. Tom Graiello. And I joined the podcast had a hundred episodes. We haven't done one in a while. So we're in hiatus, although still kind of talking about what the future of the podcast is, but we interviewed many, many uh, ethicists, roboticists, entrepreneurs, and what came up often with people creating devices was a desire for authenticity, transparency. And, you know, by transparency, what is meant is communicating that although this thing might have some of the abilities and characteristics to mimic human behavior, that there are design efforts put into it to make sure that it communicates that it's not trying to mimic those things. And so, you know, again, it gets into a lot of sophisticated, blurry areas. But, um, you know, for example, one of the interviews that I have in the My Robot Gets Me book is with Jonathan Foster, who whose background is in um, screenwriting and humanities. And he led the team creating the writing for Microsoft Cortana. And he talked about the importance of putting clues into the dialogue that let people know that this is a bot and not a human and, and not trying to trick people into being human. Well, we have pretty much run out of time, but I would like to close just by inviting you. We, you know, we've made several mentions of science fiction, and I think a lot of people, as you've mentioned, their conceptions about robots come from science fiction. A lot of the robots in science fiction, though, are humans in robot suits, you know, just for practical and budgetary purposes, which puts a whole host of ideas into our heads, which are probably not very useful in thinking about robots in the real world. And if we're going to be interacting with robots more and more, what are some concepts that you would like people to take on board that they don't get from the science fiction robots that they're so familiar with? I think the core concept is that the robot brain is not the same as the human brain, which is an obvious thing to say. But, you know, I wrote a piece for Popular Science a few years ago that was, is don't blame the robots, blame us, is what the piece was. And 
uh, you know, some of it was around marketing and like marketing of just even the name of Tesla's autopilot and insinuating that it's a partner pilot, a pilot like we are. And, you know, instead of falling prey to those ideas and like what you said, like have, watching somebody, watching a human being in a suit and then thinking that that's how a robot works for us to, you know, I think there should be robot literacy, frankly, um, um, in the general population where we understand microphones, microcontrollers, cameras, and that, that those are the bits and pieces that add up to this interaction. And that the more we understand about that, the better we'll also be able to interact and forgive flaws in a product and, and things like that. But, you know, in that, so in that piece, don't blame the robots, blame us. You know, I, I write about how we're just so tempted to get a mental model of looking out onto the road and feeling like this vehicle that we want to believe is semi-autonomous sees the same things we do in the same way. And instead understanding that it's a robot brain and it sees things the way that a robot brain would see things. So it sees edges, it sees blocks of color and, you know, and, and, Having And as designers, we can have interfaces that demonstrate the robot brain and help us with that disconnect. It's, it's tempting to uh, say what society really needs is for everybody to be acutely aware of the things that I'm acutely aware of. But uh, I, I know that's, you know, it's not a realistic expectation. But uh, I think that having designers who are very um, sophisticated in their understanding of how people think about robots and anticipating misunderstandings will probably be very helpful. And, you know, that, that is a subset of people who we can expect, you know, to adopt a rather specific and, and sophisticated set of distinctions. Yeah. So um, you are somebody who is defining, you know, the, that curriculum, quite literally in the case of, you know, working in academia, but also more figuratively in your, your corporate work. So I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, me too. I loved your questions. Thanks so much. That was Carla Diana. And if you want to interact with Carla, I see links to her Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn accounts on her website, carladiana.com. All right. Well, re-listening to that conversation got me to thinking about the Tesla bot. This is a proposed Android product that uh, Elon Musk announced at the uh, Tesla AI day. I think it was this year. And this robot, I think, is everything that Carla Diana doesn't like. Not only is it roughly human shaped, but it is so humanoid looking that it really just looks like a skinny androgynous person in Lycra. I mean, it is sculpted to look like a human body. But it has no face. Its face is just blank, black plastic. No indication of eyes, no nose, no mouth, just a blank shield in place of a face. So I forget where I got this phrase, but I reserve the right to hold complicated opinions. And typically... Very few people hold complicated opinions about Elon Musk. They either think he is a miracle worker and savior of humanity, or they despise him. And they think that everything he does is either evil or a fraud. And I am certainly in neither camp. I'm a big fan of space exploration. And, you know, to really get to work in space, you got to get into space. And governments have been very, very slow in making that happen. And they do it at enormous cost. And SpaceX is ratcheting up the frequency of launch and bringing down the costs simultaneously. And I think that will be of immense value to the human project going forward. But he is also quite the showman. And I think some of his projects and some of his goals are so far from being realistically achievable that I, I have trouble believing that he believes them. Like a human colony on Mars in the near future with millions of people? I just don't see it. And what's more, this humanoid robot 
They call it Optimus, as in Optimus Prime. It's a humanoid robot that is supposed to be able to do tasks that humans do. But we don't even have self-driving cars yet. And compared to a real human home, not, not a TV representation of a human home that is sanitized and clutter-free, but a real human home full of stuff, particularly if there are kids in the house, toys everywhere. I mean, just a chaotic environment. Compared to that, the roads that you and I drive on all the time are a model of predictability and simplicity and rule-governed behavior. And we don't have self-driving cars out on those roads. I mean, there are a few. Typically, there's a human sitting behind the wheel just in case, because even that environment is still too chaotic and unpredictable for machine intelligence. Now, I've heard Elon Musk describe Tesla as a green energy company that happens to make cars or an artificial intelligence company that happens to make cars. And he's really doubling down on this, um, this notion that the self-driving Tesla automobiles are in fact robots. And if you're making robots with wheels, well, you might as well make robots with legs and hands. It's the same basic technology. And it's not. It's just not. For somebody who's really excited about the exploration of space, I'm not particularly excited about putting humans in space. To put a human in space, you have to take this bubble of human atmosphere with a certain pressure, with a certain mix of gases, uh, shielded from radiation. You have to provide water, you have to provide food. And even if you get all that right, just spending time in weightlessness is bad for humans. But it's no problem for robots. You know, there's not a robot operating today that can do what Elon Musk says the Tesla Optimus bot is going to do, which is to walk through a chaotic human environment and do chores that, you know, humans do now. That's not realistic in the here and now. It's not happening. And my prediction is it's not going to happen anytime soon. But we've had robots that can operate in space and do amazing things in space, travel hundreds of millions of miles and arrive at a destination exactly where it was supposed to be. We've been doing that since the 70s. Space is for robots, not for canned apes. But the surface of the Earth, and particularly our chaotic shared living environments, our built environment, these are made by and for upright apes, you and me. Robots have a very difficult time traversing our spaces. Typically, when robots are useful, like in factory production, they are fixed in place, or they have an environment which is strictly regulated and designed for them to operate in so that there are no surprises. So when I saw that Tesla bot, which really just looks like a skinny person in, you know, in tight fabric, I thought, no way. And one analyst put it perfectly when he said it's more pageant than product. Now, on the topic of robots and space, and most importantly, and this is the part of the conversation that if, you know, I could do a second conversation with Carla Diana, I would really want to focus here, labor. You know, we get the word robot from that Czech play, Rossum's Universal Robots, and in that play, not only are robots made for labor, they're explicitly described as a slave race, and they revolt. The very first story about robots is one in which they stage a revolution. But Kim Stanley Robinson, I think, has a very realistic take on robots and labor and the replacement of human labor with robots. In some instances, it makes economic sense. But for most, it doesn't, because human labor is cheap. The whole notion of unskilled labor is ridiculous. Humans come built in with an amazing suite of very sophisticated capabilities. Even somebody who can't read or write, has never been to school a day in their life, their ability to move through space, manipulate objects, recognize objects, and communicate their intentions and desires with others in coordinated fashions is unrivaled in the field of robotics. And I was just listening to Kim Stanley Robinson's book, his novel, 2312, and in it there is a brief passage about humans and robots and labor. I wasn't reading it, I was listening to the audiobook, but it did the audiobook equivalent of leaping off the page. And uh, it obviously leapt off the page for other people because it is circulating on the internet as a freestanding quote. I'm going to read it here from Goodreads. Kim Stanley Robinson writes, quote, 
Humans were still not only the cheapest robot around, but also, for many tasks, the only robots that could do the job. They were self-reproducing robots, too. They showed up and worked, generation after generation. Give them 3,000 calories a day, a few amenities, a little time off, and a strong jolt of fear, and you could work them at almost anything. Give them some ameliorative drugs, and you had a working class, reified and cog-like. Close quote. So yeah, humans. Humans will be toiling for a long time yet to come, and the idea that we're all going to get replaced by robots or artificial intelligence is just not very realistic. In fact, that, from my perspective, that would be a much easier situation to deal with than AI and robotics selectively entering into the job market, eliminating some categories of labor and supercharging others. So that some people who don't really know how to interface with the economy, you know, a robot labor-infused economy, they're just kind of left to flounder. And the people who have found a place in the robot labor-infused economy tend not to be very sympathetic to those people who don't know how to get with the program. That's much more complicated than a situation where robots can do everybody's job equally well, because then it would be obvious we have to make other arrangements for provisioning human beings. But in the current context of a creeping, uneven introduction of AI and robotic labor into, you know, human income-generating activities, it's really easy just to kind of ignore the problem, kick the can down the road. All right, I'll stop there. What are your thoughts on robotics, labor, space exploration and development? any of the things that we've talked about in this episode. I'd love to hear from you either via email. My email address is kmo at padverb.com, or you can participate on our Telegram group, which if you go to the show description for this podcast on padverb.com, you should see a text link to that Telegram forum. All right. Thanks as always to the Padverb team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Alina Voigt, assistant producer Sonia Saw, with music by Slava Borisov. I will be back here with a new conversation in one week's time. Talk to you then.